This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome to Business by the Numbers. I'm your host, Hunt Emerus, CPA with Parmelis and Associates. Today, I'm excited. I got a special guest here. Actually, we were just talking before this, brought the team out to Vegas. So uh, for some of you guys listening, this is the reason why we haven't been responding for the last couple of days. Had the entire team out in Vegas doing some team building, uh, team training and stuff like that. Uh, but I got Frank Skandura here, owner of Frank's European Service, also author of the book, How to Take Care of Your Vehicle So It Will Take Care of You, also a coach with the Transformers Institute, and I'm probably missing a couple other things. So Frank, just want to say thanks for coming on here. Hi, Hunt. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. So before we get into that with Frank this week, I want to have a quick word from our partners who make business by the numbers possible. Your shop's customers pump their own gas and bag their own groceries, and most of them don't mind booking online or paying you via a live chat bubble in a self-serve universe. Get up to speed and get shopware.com. At Repair Shop of Tomorrow, the focus is on helping shop owners unlock their full potential by specializing in expert coaching and marketing program designed for your specific shop. For more information about their programs, please visit them at repairshopoftomorrow.com. All right. So, Frank, uh, we were kind of talking before the show on this. Um, you know, I want to start off here with obviously the name of my show is Business by the Numbers. So I have to ask at least one numbers question. I'll lead you with this one. So what is your focus right now on numbers? You know, it's not necessarily what you think is the most important, but what are you actually working on in your shop right now? And, and what are you looking at or, or what are you doing to try and change that? We've uh, changed our focus to gross profit dollars. I've always known that gross profit percent doesn't pay bills. Gross profit dollars does. I buy a part for 20 bucks, mark it up to 40. I got $20 gross profit. I buy a part for $30, mark it up to 60. I got $30 gross profit. So it makes a huge difference having gross profit dollars. So we've really focused on that. We've already gone through our car count KPIs. We've already gone through our ARO KPIs, right? So we got all that in place. But for the longest time, there's just no money. We're working our butts off. Where's the money? We're doing a lot of money in sales. Where's the money? So by focusing on gross profit dollars, it completely changed everything in our business. Now, when you say gross profit dollars, it's a good point, right? Because a lot of people are just focused on the percentage and are shying away from work because, yeah, the percentage aspect, it, you know, it doesn't look as good. But, you know, tires are a great example, right? From a percentage, they look really bad. But from gross profit dollars, they look pretty good when you factor in the mounting, balancing and stuff like that. What do you think would the biggest change that you had to make with your business? Or what did you see when you went from the percentage mindset to the dollar mindset? What I saw was discounts all but disappeared. Wow. Because when you're looking at a $1,900 job and a guy says, look, man, can you do it for 1700 And the advisor thinks in his head real quick, well, what's 5% of 200 Sure, I can do it. Oh. But now when he's on a gross profit dollars, and that's 200 bucks comes is a lot more impactful now, right? So it's like, okay, I better spend more time building value in this, and I better spend more time building a better job in this, right? Car comes in for a water pump. The right thing to do is, by the time a water pump goes out, it's going to need hoses. It's going to need a cooling system serviced. So- Let's present it all. So now the guy goes, oh my gosh, $3,500. I wasn't expecting that. What can you do? Well, let me take the hoses off. Now I've lowered the price for him without digging into our profit. When you had that before, you made a really good point there because I didn't even think about that of like, when you look at the percentage, just like you said, okay, 5% is not that big of a deal. But if you're looking at the actual dollars, you know, whatever you discount, that's straight off a profit. That's straight money coming out of your pocket. And so from a service advisor level, how did you incentivize them or how did you kind of shift their mindset to be looking at the dollars versus the percentages? Well, we do a really good job of setting expectations. You know, it's not like, hey, we got to try this. It's like, this is what we're doing. And I always try to give them the why, because when they have the why, it helps them understand. Yeah. You know, we actually did the math in the beginning. We showed them, okay, look, I was paying you this on gross sales. I'm going to pay you this on gross profit dollars. It's the same last month. Do you see that? And then we just showed them how it works moving forward so they were able to get on board with it. I love that idea. And that is super important. And I did an episode a couple of weeks about pay plans. The thing about pay plans is you want to incentivize people on something they can control, but also the same flip side is that employee is going to use that to their advantage as well. Yeah, right? One of the big things of why I always shy away from pay plans that are on sales is you're incentivizing sales. Sales don't necessarily mean anything else, Right. Here's an example. An engine job is high dollar mm-hmm. sale, low dollar gross profit. So if I'm focused on 
selling his motor and selling his tranny, and all the cabin filters are leaving and air filters are leaving, which is a lower dollar sale amount, but high gross profit dollar, that helps them get in a different mindset. Now, have you seen kind of a shift of what kind of work that you guys are doing? Have you seen them kind of shy away from some of these larger ones where the gross profit is just not as realistic to kind of achieve? Or have they just been pricing these better or what? Definitely been pricing them better. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, shops are afraid to charge a lot of money for a used engine. And last I checked, it's not my car, not my problem, not my monkey, not my circus. And I told the team, I said, there's no reason for us not to hit our targets on this, but we might not sell it. Yeah. Okay, show me the downside. It's the scarcity mentality, right? Everyone says, well, if I don't price this, they're not going to say yes, which is a terrible mindset. The mindset should be is, okay, if I price this correctly and they say yes, we're going to do the work and we're going to get paid fairly. If they say no, then we don't have to do the work. But the scarcity mentality for a lot of shop owners is they're afraid, well, if I say no to this job, are my technicians going to be kind of sitting there twiddling their thumbs? And that goes back to the car count I mentioned earlier. We'll talk about that more later. You have to have enough work to be able to do that. Yeah. And you have to have enough other things in place to be able to do that. And I'm not sure if it's even scarcity mentality as much as it is. Oh my gosh, that's a lot of money. I don't know if they can afford it. Let me make it affordable. Selling with their own wallet. Yeah. And I'd be curious if you have a thoughts on why we see this more on Euro shops. Cause I know personally, I see discounts a lot more than Euro shops. We work with about 600 shops on a monthly basis. Discounts for 95% of my shops are non-existent. They just don't do them. Right. But when I do see discounts and material enough where it actually is affecting people's profitability, it's always Euro shops. And I don't get why. Well, sales training fixes that, number yeah. one, right? So you really have to focus on building value in what you're doing, building value in why they picked the right shop. Maybe it's your warranty, right? For three years, 36. Maybe it's the towing reimbursement. I think it's up to $150 per tow. Free roadside assistance, these things that we're able to offer. When they can't build that value, then their only thing left is price. And it's not uncommon. For it. I'm going to guess some of these owners are involved in those discounts. Yeah. Because... They're the worst. They have zero sales training. Mm -hmm. Most guys started as technicians and it's like, mm -hmm. dude, what can you do? And it's like, oh crap, I, I can't deal with this. How much is it going to take to make you shut up so I can go back to work? Yeah. Right. So that's got a lot to do with it too. So the sales training really, really helps make a huge difference in that. Yeah. Cool. Want to pause? What's up, Matt? Oh, you guys haven't been person. You didn't even know this was Frank. Frank, hey, Matt. Hi. How are you? <laughs> We'll leave that in the episode just so that people feel real. That's You're right. Like, it is real. It's great for the listeners. There was just an introduction that you guys won't hear or see. No, and, and you made a really good point there, right? Is a lot of people look at that and they're like, I'm not even going to present that to a customer because mentally to themselves, they're already thinking that, right? And I see that a lot of times with labor rate. Well, that's too expensive. Why? Like, Why? what are you comparing this to? Right. What are you talking about? Yeah. Well, that's just a lot of money to charge someone on it, right? And so like we always talk about the value proposition. You have to deliver value to your customers, right? The customers have to perceive that value. But then also you personally, whether you're the service advisor or the owner pushing this, you have to be confident. And so many times with shop owners, I see they're providing value. They're doing good work. Their customers are coming back to them because they're doing good work and they know it. And they're their own worst enemy. Do you see that a lot with clients that you coach and that you work with along the way? All the time, because like I said, you know, the shop owner needs to get out of the shop. When I went from tech to service advisor to owner, I really had to learn how to think like a businessman. Yeah. I couldn't think like an employee anymore. I couldn't think like, hey, I was the best technician, period. I was the best service advisor, period. You know, I was the top writer at the dealership here. I mean, uh, another guy used to go neck and neck every month. He beat me one month, I beat him the next. It was quite a challenge. It was fun. But that doesn't translate to how to run a profitable business. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, just really hard when you try to convince people this of, right. It's, everyone is their own hardest critic on it. And I also think for a lot of people too, is they know what's going into it, right? They have way more information. Sometimes it's good or bad than a customer does. Hey, I know how much that part cost. I know how seemingly easy that job is, but especially in this day and age where these cars are getting so hard, you might as well be, you know, speaking in a foreign language, right? They don't even know what you're doing. They're like, it was broken, all the lights were on, and you guys fixed it, right? It might as well be magic. And that's part of that sales process, right? I don't know if you ever have the opportunity to hear a service advisor sometimes goes, oh my gosh, bad news, Johnny. The alternator is bad on that car, and that alternator is a thousand dollars. Yeah. I don't know how you're going to afford it. You're going to have to tell your wife she can't have chicken this week. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> and what you should be saying is, 
good news. We found your problem and we're able to solve it. And it's only a thousand dollars. Can I have it done tomorrow? What do you want me to do? Completely same problem. Same resolution, completely different attitude towards it. For sure. And it's funny, too, because, you know, I have a different perspective on this, right? Because I'm working in this industry, but not in a shop, right? You know, we are accountants, but only work with shops. And also when I'm dealing with shops, a lot of times I'm the customer side of it, right? I have a mechanic that I take my car to and kind of see it from the opposite side. And so I think it's cool when I can kind of share feedback because you guys are too close to this, right? Most of not you, because I think you have a better perspective But most of my shop owners have been doing this for 30 years, right? They have such a narrow focus on it. Now, when you're working with, you know, shops that you're coaching, you know, one of the things that I see a lot of times with Euro shops that are trying to push these sales, sometimes I hear people are like, we're totaling cars. Sometimes we're finding too much work. Where that comes from is, you know, I'm a BMW guy myself. And there is a lot of things where it's like, I know you bought that car for 20 grand, but it now needs $20,000 worth of work. How do you kind of weigh that into your business of, all right, I know I need to present this, but maybe not all of it is urgent. Do you guys do like a red, yellow, green situation or what do you do there? That's exactly right. And it starts at drop off. Tell me about this car. How long have you had it? What are your intentions? How long are you going to drive it? Did Aunt Martha leave it to you and you're not going to get rid of it for anything? Or is this just going to last you till the end of school next year so you can get something when you're not paying for your kid's college? And then we prioritize everything. And it's really important because customer education is a big part of our success. And when we went digital uh, inspections with Autovitals five or six or seven years ago, being able to show them pictures was incredible. It was a game changer. And the old days used to be, Bob, come on down. You've got to see this. He'd take time off of work, shuffle into the shop, look up, have no clue what he's looking at. goes, (laughs) I guess that's bad. How much? Exactly. Then I got the digital camera and then I was able to attach that to an email. Here it is. It looks bad. Oh, so you were doing like digital inspections before Before actually software. Before it was actually cool. Yeah. (laughs) You know, then it became text. I could text you a picture. Now you've got my cell phone. Oh, crap. Right. (laughs) Because it's like uh, seven o'clock at night and I just want to talk to you about my car. Exactly. Well, I'm not your therapist. Please make this call later. (laughs) So educating them on that, then we could attach educational videos and this is information. This is how an AC compressor works. And this is what happens when it doesn't work. And this is why it's kind of important to do it. And that helps people relax, right? So that transparency has really been huge for us. Now, when you have that, then you're exactly right of being able to understand what they're trying to do with this. Because if you don't know that, how are you going to be able to effectively be their advisor there, right? And so now you're taking selling out of it. I'm educating you. Yeah. This is what I see. This is what you need. This is when you need it. Yeah. And if you don't ask for the sale, you don't know what you're missing out on. And it's like, I used to have somebody write for me who would never sell wiper blades. I said, why? What are you doing? He goes, it never rains here. I said, never? <laughs> Four inches a year may not be a lot, but that's not never. Yeah. And I'm the guy who, there's a little bit of speckle on my, I clean my windows. My washer's got to work. My wiper's got to work. Yeah. I hate cracking rubber. I hate tires that aren't right. I hate wipers. Or just that, that sound, right? right? <laughs> of just, you turn it on, you're like, oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. But that's not your call. Yeah. Because if that guy's like me... It wants a clean windshield. You darn well better tell him about it. Yeah. And let him say no. Yeah. Like, hey, they may be aware of this. It's your choice to say yes or no. Now, going back to that, this is a question that comes up a lot where people ask me and I say, "Eh, I'm not really sure. Right. Ask the expert. Ask Frank about this. So I'm going to do that. So when you have someone comes in there and let's just do a hypothetical example. Right. They got a ninety nine five forty on it. You know, hey, I like this car, but, you know, it's not going to be my forever car. Let's say that this car comes in there and it's got some issues, right? Hey, you know, your serpentine belt is cracked. It's got a misfire on it. So we need to do more plugs and coils. If it's a 99540, it's valve covers, it's oil pan, it's all <laughs> timing chain guides. I'm speaking from experience. I yeah. have one. I still miss that car. <laughs> but the reason I ask that is, you know, this one, just like a lot of them, you know, any BMW V8, if it's not leaking fluids, that means it has no fluids. <laughs> um, but like, what do you have for something like that of, all right, I have a leaking, you know, oil pan on the bottom. It's not leaking. It's just got some seepage on it where it's not a safety issue. In a perfect world, it doesn't. But you know that this person is wanting to use this, but not wanting to put a lot of money in it. Would you even present that knowing that on them? Or would you just take that off the estimate not to kind of give them sticker shock? We would present it. And I'll tell you why. Because I don't know from today to when it starts dripping on the ground. Mm-hmm. I just don't. Gotcha. So if I at least present it to you as it's seeping right now, 
Let's yellow this for future attention. And next time we come in, we'll re-inspect it and see if it's the same or if it's changed. And that builds value, right? It's like, oh, okay. Because the first thing you're thinking is now I'm not trying to sell you something you don't need. Yeah. Right. And we get that a lot from our customers. There's no, there's no pressure. I'll never allow any of my team to put pressure on somebody to buy something, even if it's a safety item. You have no brakes. You don't want to put brakes in your car. I recommend you tow it. You don't want to tow it. Sign here yeah. that you refuse to tow it. Yeah. Now, when you have something like that, so do you, and this is probably software specific, right? On what people are using for their DVIs, estimates, invoicing, and stuff like that. Now, when you have this and you have the green, yellow, red, do you give them an entire estimate with all of this in there? Or do, can they see, hey, if you just do the green, if you just do the yellow, like how are you able to kind of present all that information while still not slapping them in the face or having a lot of questions come back of, well, what would it be if I just did this or just did that? So the phone call would probably start something like this. Hunt, I'm going to tell you everything that's going on with your car and I'm going to give you a total. Then we're going to go over priorities. Gotcha. So now I've prepared you to hold on to something. You're driving <laughs> a 99540. Yeah. And then... It might be 16000 or 18000 or 20000 like you said. Now, if you don't fall down and hit the floor, I can continue the conversation. <laughs> Let me break it down. This is why I'm telling you this. So it's a 300 rule. 100% of the cars must be inspected. 100% of the estimate or the inspection must be estimated. 100% of the estimate must be presented. I talk to shop owners. Go, oh, I'm afraid that you know it's going to get mad at me. I said, let me tell you something. You got a new customer coming in. There's something going on in his life that he lost trust wherever his car was before. Because oh, there's really a good, good point. chance this is not his first car and he got his license last week. There's a yeah. really good chance of that. He's 43 years old. This is not his first vehicle. Okay. So why would you start off with even a hint of deception? Mm -hmm. Because you're afraid of what? The truth? Never be afraid of the truth. You can never go wrong with the truth. So if you just present it in a way where, look, man, this is the reality. This is what it needs. Here's all the pictures. I could justify all of this. <clears throat> but this is seeping. We're going to keep an eye on it. This could possibly break and, and cause a breakdown. There's belt, there's belt tensioner. This really, if you're going to do anything, let's do this today. Gotcha. And so, and like you said, of, you know, just like already negotiating your price before he even hits the door of taking stuff off of there, they now, there's no way that they can ever say yes because you'd even present it. Correct. I love that idea. And I'm the guy who would have probably said yes. I am at a point in my life where I don't want any trouble with my car. Drives her crazy. Yeah. Because I'm like, look, the car's got 109,000 miles on it. I'm nervous. I'm uh -huh. gonna take it out of town. It's got to go. We don't need a car. We need a car. We don't need a car. We need a car. I'm pointing to my wife for those of you who don't see this. I don't have time in my life. Do you have time for car trouble in your life? No. All right. So if I bring you my car, I expect you to be honest with me and tell me everything possible to prepare me for what I need down the road. Yeah. I wrote in uh, an article not long ago about the importance of an inspection. So imagine for a moment, new customer comes in and you do once over in the car and I don't want him to think I'm trying to get him. So I'm just going to tell him everything's okay. Have a nice day. They get a phone call at two o'clock in the morning that their sister's getting knocked around by her drunk husband again. You need to go in a car and travel six hours to go get him, but you don't make it. You don't make it because I didn't tell you about the water pump or I didn't tell you about the belt. But the tow truck driver's going to say, no, if you had your car checked, they'd have probably told you about that. Boom. Well, I just had my car in. Why didn't they tell me, look at the position I'm in now? Yeah. Right? Because every single person you know has something going on in their life that you have no clue about. You need to prepare them for whatever may come up. Because if you'd have told them, look, this car needs belts, it needs hoses, it needs a water pump, you may not want to drive it very far if you can't afford to fix it. I guarantee you they never would have jumped in that car to make that trip. How many shops, when you start coaching with them, are just completely already going from, hey, I have your car, here's what you need to do, without even getting any of this backstory? Like, what percentage of shops that you start working with are not even having that conversation? You know, I don't know, because I kind of always start with the frank way. Yeah. This is what we do. This is why we do it. Look at the results I've got. You can have those results. Yeah. And it's not until we start having those conversations that I could find out, well, you know, I'm not sure if I should tell her. Poor old lady. She can't afford it. Then do it for free. Get yeah. Break, you know, you could afford it. Fix your car. <laughs> now, do you have any, you know, there's obviously, you know, you're very big on process and procedures and stuff like that. Now, one thing I get asked a lot or not asked, but it gets brought up is sometimes are people a little bit different if it's a new customer, right? Because their big fear is, all right, like you said, they've already had a relationship somewhere else. I don't want to slap in the face like, oh, my God, this is a fortune. Do you change that or do you say this is a disservice by changing our procedure? I'm going to treat a new customer the same as someone who's been here with me for 15 years. The process is the process is the process. It's not what I feel like doing at this particular moment, because as soon as that happens, it usually costs Frank money. Yeah. When it costs Frank money, he goes into the ceiling, 800 foot pounds, 
and you can't get a torque <laughs> big enough to get me out. <clears throat> what we do do different with a new customer is we clearly set expectations. Mm-hmm. If I don't set the expectations at the front counter with the customer on my terms, I have to live up to them on their terms. Who's going to be unrealistic, me or them? So we start right from the beginning. We are going to perform an inspection on your car. We are going to do an estimate on everything we find. And we're going to present it to you. We're going to show you what you need to do now, what you can wait on. So now there's no surprise. Now it's not like, hey, by the way, we looked at your car and it's like, what a pile. <laughs> None of that. Yeah. So then a customer says, I don't want my car inspected. We don't do it. Yeah. Because that's the first guy to say it didn't leak oil until you changed it. So if someone says, I don't want an inspection, you will still service a vehicle no. without doing an inspection. Nope. You just say, that is great. That's Here are your of, keys yes. and best of luck. Yeah. We're very sorry. The inspection process is very important for us because our goal is to provide you with safe and reliable transportation. The only way I can do that is to know everything that's going on in the car. The only way I can do know that is to perform a thorough inspection. I love that, right? Because a lot of times I see people that are willing to change the way that they do business based on customer requests. Well, I don't normally do this, but they asked. I don't normally do this, but they asked. There's never a situation where you change your way and you end up making more money on it, right? It's never. always now, it's always the opposite. It. Yeah. It's, it always ends up costing us something in the long run. Yeah. So, and we've had that problem in the past. While well, the customers didn't want the inspection, I had to fix that by stop telling the advisors inspections are no write-up, and go to the tax and say, if you get a car back here that says do not inspect, and you touch it, we're going to have a conversation. And it's like, well, I don't write the tickets. I know that, but I'm giving you authority not to ride on that car and call me. When you started in this business, did you really think that cars would be driving themselves and that people would be buying cars online without test driving them? I don't think any of us did, yet that's exactly what is going on. On the repair side, the auto industry is changing fast. Customers expect quick answers and proof that they need the repairs that you recommend. They want to pay you while buying a coffee, then rate you on Yelp after picking up their keys. So why stay in a past? A shop owner named Carolyn asked herself the same question, so she created an online shop management system that automates the stuff you do over and over again. She and her team added texting in every step in the process from booking your appointment to posting that stellar review. They learn from their customers just like you learn from yours. And it's the system that's leading the industry into a bright future. Find out more about this and other things at GetShopware.com. At Repair Shop of Tomorrow, the focus is on helping shop owners unlock their full potential by specializing in an expert coaching and marketing program designed for your specific shop. Their mission is to coach the owners to focus on growing their bottom line and building a team culture within their business. At the Repair Shop of Tomorrow, a Napa Auto Care endorsed program, they train the owners and the staff what right looks like, so everyone is on the same page and driving towards a common goal. Their coaching program focuses on all aspects of your business so that the owner can step back from the daily grind and start to work on their business and not in their business. For more information about their programs, please visit them at repairshopoftomorrow.com. All right, you go down, you guys do a very thorough inspection. You guys have recommended the stuff. They really understand it. Maybe they pick one or maybe they pick nothing on it, but they come in for whatever their intended purpose was. Now, let's say that car comes back the next visit and you notice that, hey, you know what? Upper and lower control arm bushings were shot. You know, you had, I don't know, like you said, let's do leaking valve pan or uh, oil pan on it. But now when they come back the next time, all of that stuff has been replaced. Do you guys, obviously someone else has done it. You were used as more or less free diagnosis on what this car needs. You guys ever see that? Do you guys address that or what? It's pretty rare because we do establish pretty good relationships with our customers and we do set such expectations out. But when it does happen, my manager will ask them, why didn't we get that work? Gotcha. We've got one guy for the longest time, oil change, oil change, oil change. He drives AMGs. Needs a B service, just change all. Needs an A service, just change all. Look, the, needs this, needs that, just change all. I said, okay, when do we stop just changing all? Yeah. It's not because I want to make money in the other repairs. I'm going to be tied to that car at some point when he's driving down the road and keeps telling me, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and the ball drain fails or something else goes out. Yeah. Why do I want to be tied to that? Now, is this guy actually <clears throat> doing those services somewhere else, or he's just literally ignoring all of that? Ignoring it all. <laughs> <laughs> he's got good confidence in that vehicle, doesn't he? And I see that from time to time. 
I remember one guy goes, don't tell me I need spark plugs. I'd never change spark plugs, never have a problem. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and so for someone like that AMG, I mean, do you... Like, how do you guys make that work, especially on something like oil changes? Because that's a big topic a lot. A lot of people don't price their oil services enough. So they're literally sometimes losing money, definitely losing money in the opportunity cost side of it. Do you guys at some point just tell him, hey, we really love changing oil, but we're good on this one? Or you guys just say, we're going to need to address this at some point, but we don't really want to have this conversation right now. Yeah, that's more of the way it goes. It really comes down to this may not be the right shop for you. Yeah. And that's usually the most polite way to say it. That'll usually get a guy ratcheted up a little bit. What do you mean? And the response has always got to be, this may not be the right shop for you. All right. Super even. Yeah. Don't get excited. What are you going to twist it up for? Got a hundred cars in the parking lot. Who cares about this car? On the other side of the coin, when you aren't taking care of a customer, he needs to feel like he's the only car in the parking lot. And we do that very well. It has to get to the point where you have to remember that I can't let this guy drag me down. Pareto principle, 80-20 principle. Have you heard of it? No. Look it up on Google. It's pretty cool. 1700s, this guy running around Italy trying to figure out agriculture. And he learned that 80% of the food came from 20% of the farms. And which was really, he never expected that. That has been applied to businesses now. That 80% of our revenue is coming from 20% of our customers. You know, if you go to church, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That principle really comes to light when you think about what am I doing with the bottom 20%? Those are the yellers. Those are the grinders. Those are the ever sent you. And those are the ones that suck the life out of you. So if I just slowly eliminate them, I'll always have a bottom 20%. But eventually my bottom 20 gets better because the top 20%, they usually just go away and you don't know why. You don't even realize it sometimes. It's like, hey, we haven't seen so-and-so in a while. I wonder what happened. Well, you're probably getting a life sucked out of you by a bottom feeder mm-hmm. who was causing you to change your focus from the guy that says, look, I don't care if it's seeping, fix it. It's really, really important to focus on the people who bring you the least trouble and the most joy, whether it's in your life, your business or whatever. Yeah, it is really true, right? It's like a lot of times, and I'm guilty of this in my business as well, is I feel like as business owners, you know, we take our reputation very seriously, right? You've been doing this a long time. I've been doing this a long time. And I really not only enjoy what I do, I have a big passion for it, right? And so when I hear people that have bad experiences or not happy, I take that really, really hard. It's personal, right? isn't it? It's really yeah. personal. But then the thing about it that you have to remember is this is a small majority of this, right? The reason why we build and the reason why we have continued success is most people are happy. But I feel like a lot of times as business owners, you make decisions based on that small percentage that's unhappy versus the majority of people that are liking what you do. And we tend to create policies and procedures based on that one or two. And here we got thousands of customers in our database who love us. And you got this one Jamoke threatening to call us names online or whatever, and it's going to ruin your reputation. I'm going to tell all my friends. And, and I think I said it to me once, and I thought to myself, both of them? <laughs> because with your attitude and the way you're speaking to me, you can't have a whole lot. Yeah, and we've had that issue before. We had one person where, you know, they had a bad experiences and not going to call them up by name by any means. And I remember talking to someone that, you know, was an advisor, you know, to us and, and kind of knew the whole situation. And I said, I feel terrible about this, right? It's really nothing that we did. And this person's going to be unhappy and there's nothing I can do to fix that. And they might go sing from the hilltops on it. And he said the same thing to me. He said, Hunt, everyone is going to recognize the source of it. They're going to look at this and they know him just as much as you know him. And mm-hmm. they're going to say, all right, I hear what you said. I also know who you are and probably know there might be more to this story. Take it with a grain of salt. Right. And that's usually what happens, right? Yeah. No, I mean, Frank, those are really good points, right? And these are a lot of questions that come up naturally. I only work with shops and help people understand their numbers and all these things where I'm talking about. And people ask me this and I say, hey, the only thing I can tell you is what my other shops have told me or what other coaches. But this is why it's so important to have a coach, right? Because, all right, you might be able to hear stuff that's worked for other shops. You might be able to kind of talk to other shop owners or talk to your accountant. But to have this real life experience of someone that has done this, has been through that, I think is invaluable. And I tell the guys I coach too, I said, listen, there was a time early in, the, in our business when I called my wife at like nine o'clock on a Friday. I said, babe, if I could just get 10 grand picked up this week, we're going to be okay. If I don't have, if I got a $10,000 day, I want answers now because it's just different. Years and years ago, I was in a, a 
a meeting of some sort. It's like, you know, I think it was kind of like a weekend thing. And then maybe we'll introduce you to a coach. Maybe you can get help. And we're going around a room. What are your expenses to everybody? And at that time, mine were like 2500 a month. Super small shop, super small everything. A couple of employees. One guy goes 45000 I go, oh my gosh, that guy's an idiot. Who would ever do that? Mm-hmm. How could you possibly have a business that costs that much? Today, Frank's European Service is about $130,000 a month is our cost, our expenses. It's mind-boggling. And we've got to push a lot of cars out the door to make up for that. Knowing what you know now, would you still go back and start a European shop? Would you go and be in general repair? Or I'll give you a third option on it if you don't want to answer that. Would you have done something different from the get-go as far as structure or reputation or brand or something like that? I'm in Europe because I worked at the Mercedes dealer for here for five years and I gave really good customer service. So it was a no brainer for me to stay Euro. Had I not done that, I probably would have done general repair because back East I did general repair. I worked at a gas station very close to the interstate. If you could push it, pull it or drag it in, I'd fix it. Trailer breaks and all kinds of crazy stuff. I think that kind is your deciding factor. You do what you know. What would I do different knowing what I know today? I probably have 10 or 15 stores right now knowing what I know today versus just trying to have that one garage mahal, 12,000 square foot, 15 bays. It's a grind, right? It's hard to do. We do like three, probably going to do three and a half, three, seven this year. That's a lot of work in one building. Three locations could do a million and a quarter, a million and a half, a lot easier. That would be the big thing. Huh? I love that idea because from a number standpoint, I would have probably argued the exact opposite of like, well, hey, would you rather have one store do three million or three doing a million? Naturally, when you look at it, a synergy overhead, something like that, I would think personally that $3 million one store would actually be more profitable or easier to run. But you're actually arguing the opposite. So you would rather, instead of having one all eggs in one basket doing $3 million, now are you saying that you think from a profitability side that those three would be more profitable, mitigating risk, or what would be your mindset behind that? So let's look at what the big stores do. Christian Brothers, Firestone, Meineke. Why do they have a certain size store? Why do they have the personnel layout that they do? Because they know that's the profits are higher. That's the sweet spot. That's the sweet spot. The talent it takes to run a three or four or $5 million single store is not the same as a guy doing a million and a half. There's also roles that don't even exist. Don't even exist, right? So now I don't have to pay that guy as much and he's still earning a good living. And the pressures are different. Instead of constantly needing to feed this beast of, you know, eight techs, seven techs all the time, I can do that with three, maybe. So it's just a completely different business model. I never even thought about that. If Yeah, like if you have a store doing $1 million, $1.2 million, you don't really need a true shop foreman or a true manager, right? Because mm-hmm. you can have a service advisor looking. It's not that big of an enterprise on it. Yeah. Huh. Now, That's how a really much cool money idea. can you make if you do five of those? Then you're not going to get six or seven or eight million dollars out of one big store, but you're going to get it out of five or six smaller stores that are easier to run and manage. And, you know, we're obviously not going to go into your numbers today. And well, we can, right? Frank's making 40% profit percentage every day, like clockwork. That's why he's coaching you guys, right? <laughs> but how many times do you see, you know, a store doing three, five million that's running at 20% net? I mean, it's, I personally have never seen one. It's very it. rare. Yeah. And I guess, you know, and I always kind of thought when I looked at it, a lot of times when people get bigger, you see people getting creep and, oh, hey, we're doing all these sales so we can start spending more and more like that. But like you said of, yeah, it is all under one roof. And, you know, you might have only one rent payment or one insurance payment, but you have all these roles that smaller shops just don't even have. Okay. So my rent's almost 19000 a month, but five or six grand the average for a six pay store. Yeah. So I could do three of those for the same rent. My insurance is based on my gross sales. So what difference does it make if I'm doing three and a half million or, or 10, right? It doesn't matter. Those costs kind of spread out. If I could do the numbers I'm doing with the expense of a smaller store, I'd be in Miami all the time. I'd be in Cancun all the time. <laughs> yeah. Now, one of the things, and I don't want to, you know, put a negative light on your situation, right? We're trying to stay positive here. One of the scary things that I see about a big store too is ultimately, like you said, you don't want to be doing this for the rest of your life. Ultimately, you want to have your exit, you know, and some of the things that I see and this, we don't have a ton that are that big, but when we do and we see them come up for sale, sometimes very hard to sell because even if they are very profitable, not only the money that it takes for someone to be able to buy something like that. Also, if you're a technician, 
you can coach someone up to be able to take over your store doing a million bucks. If you're a technician with really no business background, going from that to running and owning a $4 million store is almost impossible. You know, do you see something like that? Or is that a concern that you've had? I've had a, uh a few tire kickers. So I don't, I'm not really too concerned because I'm Euro. Those are far and fewer in between, but I'm not worried about it. Yeah. From my perspective. And, and I think it's because of the way we run our business. Yeah. And the fact that we've got good people, right? We spend a lot of time. Are you the right person for the job? Right. Is this the right person? Are you, what's the bus scenario? You're on the right bus or you're on the right seat on the right bus. So maybe you're on the wrong bus, but you're in the right seat. So go down there, go talk to that guy. He might be a little better fit for you. Or maybe you're on the right bus, but you're in the wrong seat. Let's see if we can make a change and make this work. I like that idea of like, yeah, this is a huge undertaking. Yeah, it is really intimidating. But why you would buy my business is I've addressed those issues. I have the right people. You just need to come in and, and be the leader here. I have this business set up to run in the correct way <laughs> versus if you have a smaller shop, it's a little bit less important. I got three Texas service advisor. No, it's not really running that great right now, but you could come in, tweak some stuff. You know, it's a smaller beast to be able to kind of wrap their head around. But the shops that get the highest return are the ones that are staffed to run without the owner. The ones that we were talking about earlier, that's like given those big discounts that when that guy puts that shop up for sale, he's not selling a business, he's selling a job and another tech's got to come in. And that's usually what happens is another tech or one of his people comes in and says, oh, I'm going to buy your job because I'm going to be here 68 hours a week. Yeah. And I see that a lot, right? I do a ton of valuations and I always tell people, this is the number one driver about not only the actual value of your business on paper, but how easy this is to sell. Because I don't care if you're super profitable, if you're on the counter, if someone's coming in, they're going to be like, I don't know if I want to do this because not only am I replacing the owner, I'm also replacing a service advisor, which is obviously a cost, but also that's a relationship, relationship there. with a lot of people, yeah. And I've had people that have had to try to take over those shops and it's been very, very hard. It because, is because that's usually the guy giving the deals and giving the discounts. <laughs> exactly. Someone else comes in and says, no, it's 900 bucks. Yeah, but Johnny always took care Where's of me. Where's Johnny? Right. Yeah, can you have Johnny come talk to me? Johnny's working at Walmart because <laughs> he didn't have enough money to retire. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly right. <clears throat> so one of the things I work on when I talk to a new client that I'm coaching, I like focusing on car count. And I'll tell you why. Some people schedule for a technician. It's like, well, you know, Bobby, I'm going to get him two or three cars lined up. And Jimmy, I'm going to get him two or three cars lined up. So that's six cars, right? One of those cars doesn't show up. Your day's destroyed. I teach my clients that you need to know what it costs you to do business. You need to know what you need to sell to cover those costs and be profitable. Then you divide that by your ARO. This is how many cars you need to do it. And it's usually a really huge eye opener, right? Because it's like, wow. 25 cars a week, but I'm only doing 15. So yeah, that's probably why you called me because you didn't know where that gap was. You didn't know where the problem was. You think your scheduling is like, well, I'm not going to schedule any cars on Monday in case I got a lot of tow-ins. All right. So what happens when no cars get towed in? You got to hold your shop standing still. So this is not good planning. Knowing how many cars you need based on your average RO to get to your gross profit dollar so you have enough money to eat steak instead of hot dogs. Well, and that's a really good point too, because a lot of people look at that and they say, well, where am I supposed to get all those cars from? And you got to look at it from two ways of like, well, hey, you can, yeah, advertise or do whatever you need to get those more cars in. A lot of times it's like, well, if you lift your ARO, if you price stuff effectively, instead of needing 10, now you only need four, right? And so right. usually it's kind of a little bit of both. And that's exactly the exercise I do. I'll do, here's your current gross profit divided by your expenses needs, you know, let's say 30 cars a week. Mm -hmm. If you get your gross profit up to 60%, you may only need 20 cars a week. Mm -hmm. You want to work on 30, you want to work on 20. You pick, yeah. I don't care. A lot of times service advisors' ability to handle workload drives car count. Here's an example. Oh, no, I'm, I'm real busy. I can't get you today. Click, right? Hangs up. And I caught one of my advisors doing that. And I said, Dave, I catch you saying no again. I don't need you. <laughs> Guess what happened? Bring it down. Bring it down. Bring it down, right? <clears throat> and our advisors will probably spend 10 or 15 minutes with a new customer going over the process, going over everything we're going to do. This is why you picked the shop. It's the best shop. To, let me tell you about my warranty. Let me tell you about this. Hey, did you know I have loaded cars? You want to make an appointment for a loaner car, whatever the case may be. Now, you bring up a lot of good points there, but one of the things that I wrote down here to ask you is, all right, so obviously, you know, if we have 25 cars that we need on a week at our current number, do you say you need to have 25 on the schedule? And then how do you weigh that between, all right, we need to make sure that our schedule is full, 
But then also we need to have enough fluff in case one takes longer than we need or we have a tow-in or what. How do you guys do that? That's always going to happen. So mm-hmm. just deal with it. The service advisor's job is to overfill the shop, period. The technician's job is to get it done, period. If it's 25 cars, that's five a day. So if I call Hunt at the shop from the beach and say at two o'clock in the afternoon and say, how you doing, Hunt? And he tells me, great, the weather's beautiful and I just had a really good cup of coffee. Wrong answer. I want to hear, good boss, all five cars that we needed today came in. And if the phone's not ringing, you need to get on the phone. You need to call people. Oh, I'm embarrassed. I don't want to call. Well, then go broke. I don't care. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> you got to get on the phone. You got to call people. You got to remind them what they need. Hey, just calling to see how you're doing. How's everything going? Is everything all right? Do whatever you need to do. Get on the phone. Touch people's lives. Marketing. If the phone's not ringing, you're not marketing right. If the phone's ringing because you did a 1999 oil change and you're not making any money because you're not marketing right. So these are all things that all have to work together. You could do whatever you want on pricing. You could do whatever you want on profitability. If the car is not there, it's Doesn't a new point. You know, and it's said to the end of the day, it's car count, car count, car count. That goes to profitability. That goes to tech productivity, right? How many times do you see people where it's like, and I, it hasn't happened in the last couple of years because most people are, you know, have more work to know what to do with. But how many times do you look at a shop and you say, well, hey, your techs aren't productive. And then it actually comes down to, well, the techs are doing as much as they physically can because you don't have the cars in there for them. Exactly right. Right. But a lot of people don't want to look at that and be like, well, if I have a tech productivity issue, it's a tech issue. When a lot of times when you look at it, it's it's a car count issue. This is a workflow issue. This is a dispatch issue of not having the parts ready. And you got to be more introspective on this than going yelling at Johnny for, what are you doing? You got to do more. So productivity and efficiency get confused all the time. Productivity is the tech working all day long. Owner's responsibility, making sure there's cars in that shop all day. If he's only flagging four hours and you've got plenty of work, that's efficiency. You have to look at what's going on, what went wrong, how come you can't flag more than that? Yeah. One also one of the things that I saw in the last two years, like we said, of when we've had this crazy car count and people's schedules have been packed on it, is they've done 20, 30% more than they ever thought was possible. Because they're like, oh, they can only do this much. But when they've just been bombarded with it and they're like, we need to get this stuff out. Hey, that shop that only could do 90 grand just did 140. Right. And it's opened people's eyes of like, whoa, what is actually possible here? Right. What is possible? You don't know till you try. But when a technician sees four cars in a parking lot, he goes, man, I just got to make this last because I don't want to go home early. Mm-hmm. When he sees 40 cars in a parking lot, <laughs> it's like, feed me more, feed me more, feed me more, feed me more. And they're going to hustle and get more done. It's a crazy phenomenon. Well, and you see that a lot with ARO too, right? Of like, hey, you know what? If you're looking for work, if you're actually pushing for it, magically it shows up there versus people saying, oh, you know what? We don't need that. Now, that brings up another point, though. How do you make sure that you're maximizing ARO while you're still busy? Because a lot of times of what I see people is when that demand spikes up, sometimes that ARO drops down because they're like, well, don't push for any more stuff because we're already backlogged right now. And that happens all the time, right? Car count goes down, ARO goes up because you're spending more time with the customer, more time with the car. The process is the process is the process. So if you follow the process all the time, no matter how busy you are, you'll maintain your ARO. And you see my numbers were usually within 100 bucks from one month to another, 1100 or 1200 a month ARO because the process is the process is the process. And as soon as you get in that mindset, I got to get it done, get it out, get it done, get it out. Get it. Ask the customer, can I keep it? Oh, I didn't know I could do that. <laughs> yeah. Just ask. I had a shop owner. It's a funny thing. His goal was it had to get picked up that day and done. He had $190 ARO. And I said, look, ask if you can keep the car and do more work. Wait, he never held cars? No, because he's just, people can't be without the cars. I got to have the car. got to have the car. Making that decision for them. Making that decision for them. And again, like you said before, you need to understand this, right? Yeah. Or you need to understand your customer. Hey, this guy's got four cars. He doesn't need this done. He's going to be cool with it. Or, hey, I know this person needs to pick up their kid from school. Now, then comes another one. All right, do we have loaner vehicles? Like, what are other options here? If the car's not in your shop, it's somebody else's. And if they can't get it back that day, they're making another arrangement somewhere else. Why do you think it's different in your world? It's yeah. not. So, you know, it's like, well, you know, your car needs a bunch of work, but all I can do is air filter today. All I can do is the wipers today. I don't have time. you got to have your car back. It's just not a good business model. Yeah, and we always talk about in the financials, reducing variables. It's the same exact way mm-hmm. of you take those variables out. No, we do this a certain way every single time. It's very easy, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, it doesn't matter if you're full. It doesn't matter if you're empty. It doesn't matter if you're busy. Here's how we're going to do this. My service advisor knows the expectation, and it's very repeatable. I mean, it makes their life actually easier. It does, and, and it brings in a better customer. I coached a guy who had a franchise in Michigan, and the franchise would always mail out 1995 oil changes. 
And he had like almost no control over that. And I convinced them. I says, listen, do $39.95, call it a premium oil change with inspection service. And they did that. And like three months after coaching them, the district manager came down to, what are you doing different? How come your sales are skyrocketing and you're doing more than anybody else? Because the bottom feeders stopped coming in. He said, customers are actually calling, where's my $20 oil change? And that's all they would ever buy. Better customers were coming in. He was doing better work on the cars, higher ARO, a lot less pressure on everybody. Bottom 20% we talked about before. Yeah. They evaporated. I've worked with guys in Meineke. Meineke thinks market share is car count. Frank thinks market share is dollars. So you could go for more car count, but what does that bring you? $200 ARO, $150 ARO, $90 ARO? Headaches. Headaches, yeah. Yeah, and that's what a lot of times if you look at it, and if you actually, like you said, break down how many customers you need to achieve your desired result, you know, divide that by and how many times <clears throat> they're going to visit you in the year. <laughs> if you really look at it on how many customers you actually need is a very small amount, right? Some of these people are like, oh, well, you know, I can't do this because, you know, my city's only, you know, 50,000 people. You're like, that's, that's plenty. It's plenty, right? We right. need 800 of those, maybe. maybe. And we really only need 400 consistently. That gives us a pretty big buffer. I mean, it just shifts your mindset completely on it. Right. Let's talk about the top 20% of that 50,000. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you got? Yeah. Well, and also it's funny too, because everyone always asks me and they're like, oh, you know, where are your most profitable shops? And I always tell people it's places you've never heard of, right? Right. Because those people are in an area where it's like, yeah, we have competition in town, but we don't have any true competition. No one does at the level that we do. So not only do customers already know, hey, they're the best, they're already the most expensive, they never have technician shortages either. Because anytime a position opens in their shop, they're able to pay much higher because they're charging more. Yeah. They know that it's the right way to do this. So they're like, oh, wait, Frank's hiring? Yeah, I'll quit here today if I can go work there. And I had that conversation with somebody last week. He goes, man, you pay your taxes an awful lot. I go, and what? I charge enough to be able to afford to pay them because I don't need my guys leaving for two bucks an hour. You know, you talk about the technician shortage. It's been an issue on it. And, you know, a lot of people have their ideas on how to combat that. I mean, what do you see? Do you think that this is something that is here to stay? Do you think that this is an issue that is going to sort itself out? Or is there anything that we can do about it? There's a lot we can do about it. It's an issue that's very real. and It's going to last a while. I'm involved now for the first time with the high schools in town. I just learned there's 11 high schools in Las Vegas with an automotive program. How did I not know that? Now I have a relationship. We're doing a staff development day at Frank's European Service on January 23rd, where all the automotive teachers are going to come in. I have no clue what I'm going to talk about, what I'm going to do. I know I'll feed them, but I hope I could help them excite their students. Because, you know, it's like anything else. Half the kids are there because there's nothing else to take. And dad said, take something or I'm going to kick your butt. Mm-hmm. The other half are there because maybe I want to learn how to work on a car. But how do we direct them into a career? So we got to get back to the grassroots. You got to be a shop that guys want to work at. And when I say guys, I mean men and women, okay? Don't. I use that phrase too, and I'm guilty. (laughs) You have to provide a company they want to work at, period. It's got to be clean. It's got to be well lit. It's got to be run professionally. I heard a story about there's a shop in town where, you know, they're smoking pot and drinking beer in the the shop during the day. You've got to be kidding me. Where's the leadership there? That's completely unacceptable. It's got to be professional. This is someone actually in town. They're actually doing this. Yeah, actually doing this. And you have to have boundaries because without boundaries, nobody knows what they're supposed to do, what's okay, what's not okay. And then everybody does their own thing. And then you get that guy, quiet guy in the corners, a really good tech who says, I can't believe nobody does anything about that. I got to go somewhere else. If they're going to allow that, right? They're already seeing this stuff. No, it's a really good point on it. And, you know, a lot of people don't take that into consideration, right? Just like we were talking about, you know, of productivity and stuff like that, being introspective is a lot of people are like, well, hey, are you doing the right things to attract this, yeah. right? When that guy comes in the door that's wanting to work for you, are you scatterbrained? You run around, you're not focusing on this. Or when they come in, like you said, man, stuff's all over the place. You got guys cussing at each other. It's like, well, I can't find any good help. It's like, no, you found them. You found they it. looked at you, you and they're like, off. I'm not yeah. going there, yeah. right? And the third part of that is what we did five years ago, 10 years ago, doesn't work anymore, but you won't stop doing it. So quit telling me you can't find text if you keep running ads on Craigslist, okay? Mm-hmm. You have to do things different. And we need better apprenticeship programs. There's a couple of things out there. We need a way to get people in. There's no shortage of young people who want to work on cars. There's a shortage of a career path for them. Yeah. That's the problem. 
I kind of relate that to the same way of, you know, people saying, well, I don't really have any sales. My sales are down. Right. And even I saw this in early in COVID that there's a lot of people I said, well, how are you able to maintain this is because they said, well, I just chose not to accept it. They're like, yeah, our car count was going down. I picked up the phone. I sent reminders. I followed up on stuff. And I said, I'm not going to allow this to happen. And how many times do you work with a shop where they say, I can't find any good techs versus a shop that says, well, I'm going to be creative. I'm going to try different yeah. routes. I'm going to try everything that mm-hmm. I can. And magically, they're never complaining about it because they're putting in the work versus sitting there and be like, oh, yeah. this sucks. It's a different world. You have to do things differently. Working on cars with twin turbos and four camshafts and direct injection. Ooh, we didn't have that when I was growing up. When I was growing up, when a car came out with electronic ignition, I thought that was the slickest thing on the planet. <laughs> Man, this is cool. And the old guys in the gas station where I was hanging out at 13 years old were complaining, saying, we're going to be out of business. We're not going to be able to work on these cars. Sound familiar? Cars, <laughs> you guys are saying the same crap 50 years later. Cut it out. Yeah. Pivot. Just, just cut the crap. Just do your job. Learn and move on. Cool. Look at the crap we're working on now. It's just mind boggling. Well, it's funny too, because I'm the exact opposite, <laughs> right? And when I see a carburetor, I'm like, all right, this is wizardry. <laughs> I can't even understand what's going on with this. But you brought up a really good point. And to wrap all this up, I have to bug you about this. So like you said, you know, history repeats itself. How many times has this industry been like, well, this is the last of this industry. It's going away. Now we have electronic ignition. Oh, now we have direct ingestion. Now we have computers in cars. Now we have electric vehicles. Um, and I think you recently shared the other day about uh, Toyota with the hydrogen. Hydrogen, yep. Right, where Toyota, there's a couple of them that came out with it. Toyota has been one that has been sticking with the hydrogen on it. So we could probably do a whole nother episode on this, but what, if you're a betting man, what do you see this future is like? Are we really full electric in 20 years? Do we still have internal combustion engines? Is hydrogen actually going to be the real thing or what well, does Frank think? Is, Frank is thinks coming? all three and internal combustion, hydrogen fuel, you'll see emissions are far lower. Cummings is working on one for trucks right now. Toyota and Lexus are working on the uh, Lexus 5.0 tool overhead cam V8 to run on hydrogen with uh, Yamaha and Toyota on a joint venture. Um, full electric is not good for long range. Ask anybody who's got to stop four times to go five hours. Okay. So it is good for in town. So to have electric in town is going to be okay. We need something else for long range, right? We love our cars. We're not going to give up driving. We're not going to take a high speed train. Sorry. Don't build it. It's not, nobody's going to ride it. It's going to be a novelty. This is not Europe. So stop trying to be like them. And then hydrogen fuel cell, I think will be a part of it too. And there's other technologies coming out and it's years and years out, but what are you going to do with all the gas stations? You can't put charging stations in them because you're only going to get six cars in there and get to have six cars for three hours. It's not a good business model, right? We're talking business. This is numbers. It's all about the numbers. Gas stations can easily be converted to hydrogen filling stations. Exxon, Mobil, Chevron, Texaco are not going to call everybody up and say, sorry, you got to go buy your Twinkie somewhere else. It's not going to happen. They're going to be involved. There's going to be a transition. Electric cars right now is kind of like the stopgap in between. And whenever the government's involved and mandates something, they tend to mess it up. What? Yeah. <laughs> Crazy talk, I know. <laughs> and and it, has, it has nothing to do with who's in office. All right, this is not a blue this is not red political. thing. It's, this you, is a... Enter politician's name here. Right. <laughs> Central office can't figure it out. Yeah. There's 8 million people in New York City. They never run out of bagels. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's supply and demand and they figured it out. Yeah, which is funny you bring up New York. I was just there a couple months ago and we were in Brooklyn for a meeting. You know how many Teslas I saw there? Tell me. Virtually none, none, right? Because it doesn't make sense for Brooklyn. Like you said, in town, if you live outside of a major city and you have a parking spot or something like that, it makes sense. But in Brooklyn, parking is a luxury, it's, right? Everyone right. street parks. Mm-hmm. If you street park, There's you're no parking charging. in a different spot. How the heck are you going <clears> to <throat> charge that? And that was a big thing that, you know, kind of was funny for me is I live in Maryland, right? I live out in the country. I see Teslas all day, every single day, right? Because everyone parks in the garage right next to their charger. And you would think, all right, you know, a city much more progressive, much more worried about like, you know, trying to do stuff like this. No Teslas, nowhere, right? No EVs. It just doesn't exist. Because it's impractical. EVs are here to stay, but they can't take over 100%, especially not in the what how quick they're trying to do this, right? I mean, California said that they're going to ban ICE sales by 2035, right? Right. So let's say they get, they do that. Very small chance of that happening. Let's say they do. So now all new car sales from 2035 forward is all electric or alternate fuel because the bill says alternate fuel. It's not just EV. It's still 20 years before you get all the combustion cars off the road. 
maybe longer now because I'm not giving up my old ride. Okay. This has been super reliable. So they're going to have to have a mandate where you're going to have to take it from me, which California may do. <laughs> yeah. Which as you say out loud, you're like, they would never wait. wait. You know what? Well, and also a lot of people argue that that could also be a heyday of this industry as well. Of like, let's say at some point, magically, this does happen. The thing about it right now is if you have, and we already seen this some with, you know, just hybrids, right? Let's say that you have a V8 Sequoia right now. You want a new one? There is no V8 Sequoia. It is now a V6 hybrid on it. And again, just like in the future of like, hey, you want another diesel pickup truck? Oh, all the new ones are electric. So instead of before when you said, hey, Frank just slapped me in the face with that invoice, I'll just go trade in for a new one. If you want this, you have it, right? right. You have to fix it. And you could see people throwing money into something where you're like, (laughs) in the past, 10 years ago, why would you ever put that in there? You could just go buy another one. It's like, and you can't now. It's one of one, right? (laughs) That, you know, four cylinder Camry. It's like, you like it. You better keep on fixing that thing. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Yep. Cool. It'll be fun. It'll be a fun ride. It'll be a long time. Control arm bushings, brakes, tires, window regulators, door handles, air conditioning compressors, expansion valves, AC hoses, coolant pumps, and cooling systems for these batteries, inverters, 12-volt batteries. There's no shortage of parts that need to be replaced. Yeah. Tesla has a maintenance thing on it. It's like a $400 annual service. Then just, just do that. Don't do anything else. I don't know what to tell you. Well, also the thing is, if you just look okay. at everything else in our world, it's like, hey, as things have progressed everything still breaks and at the same frequency, if not more, right? You look at a refrigerator, like you used to see refrigerators that last for 30 years. The new refrigerators only going to last five to seven because they break, they fall apart. They got 18 computers in it, right? I've got one. Her dad's refrigerator still in our garage. Yeah. I don't think it runs cold in the middle of the summer in my garage in Las Vegas. I don't know how it works. Yeah, and you go buy one now and you're like, all right, if I get five years out of this, if I get eight years out of this, mm-hmm. I've you know got my money's worth, right? We live in a society now where it's like, they're not going to make something that never breaks. There's no money in that, right? The money is in the repair side of it. Planned or the same flip side is uh, exactly planned obsolescence as I stare at my iPhone, right? <laughs> hey, if we have something that never wears down and never breaks, not only because they don't care about more or less the aftermarket of fixing it, but they're like, hey, if this never breaks, never wears down. They're not going to buy another car from us either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. So I'll leave you with last one here. So if you are, you know, kind of getting your crystal ball out here, what do you see this upcoming year, right? We're almost at the end of 2022. What do you think 2023 looks like for the industry? And what recommendation are you giving your shops on how to prepare for this? Keep doing what you're doing. Generally speaking, during a recession is very good for automotive repair. Because especially now with shortage of chips, if you can find a new car, it's usually going to be 5, 10, 15, 20,000 over sticker, depending on the model. If you can find a used car, it's going to have a lot more miles on it. It's going to be a lot more expensive than what it really would have been, you know, a couple of years ago. The opportunity to keep your car for a couple of years is bigger. So we have the opportunity to help our customers stay in their cars. So generally speaking, recessions are good for us. Stay the course. Keep a close eye on your numbers. Keep a close eye on what's going on. Get ready to pivot if something changes. COVID was a perfect example. If you didn't pivot, you're gone. And you said earlier, the shops you're dealing with have been super busy since then. I think it's because the smaller operators didn't know what to do and ended up going away. And they were so small, we didn't even notice. But also magically, you're right, because a lot of people are like, where did all this business come Come from? from. Right. That's a really cool idea to even think about that. But also, like you said, too, of, you know, just like COVID, hey, there's people that were slow or refused to pivot were those ones that either went out of business or had those bad four or five months, you know, now everyone picked up the same flip side of those guys right now thinking, oh, this is never going to go away. If you're not quick to look at the signs or be proactive on this, they're going to be the same guy sitting here in May and being like, why am I so slow? We should have been advertising six months yeah, ago to get exactly. out of this stuff. Yeah. Well, Frank, I just want to say thanks again uh, for coming out here. Uh, kind of funny. Frank and I have seen each other two times in the last week in, two in Vegas in two countries as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, just want to say thanks again. Thanks for all that you do. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've been wanting to do this for a long time with you. So I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Frank. Um, I know I really did. Um, after we stopped recording, you know, I, I sat down and I told him, I said, you know what? A lot of these questions I know are, you know, questions a lot of shop owners probably ask you already. But if you listen to those, a lot of those are things that I've heard along the way or things that I was kind of wondering about. Um, the biggest thing that I'm still trying to wrap my head around is his idea about, you know, he would rather have smaller shops than bigger because conventionally from a numbers side of thing, you know, the logic just doesn't add up, but he made perfect sense. Um, which I knew he would. 
So I hope you enjoyed that. Um, Please share with friends. And if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a future episode, please shoot me an email at podcast at parmelis.com. Thanks again for listening on the Aftermarket Radio Network. You can find all shows on aftermarketradionetwork.com and on your favorite podcast listening app. Thanks again for joining me on Business by the Numbers. Stay safe out there, and I will talk to you all next week. You've been listening to Business by the Numbers with Hunt Demarest on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Hunt on your favorite podcast listening app. Let him know what you'd like him to cover. His email is in the show notes. Hunt is all for advancing the aftermarket.